The scripture reading from tonight is from the second book of, or second Samuel, chapter 18, verses 9 through 15, and also 23, 24 through 33. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a, the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. A man saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded, You and Ashai and Ittai, saying, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then, and ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Now David was sitting between the two gates. The sentinel went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he looked up, he saw a man running alone. The sentinel shouted and told the king. The king said, if he is alone, there are tidings in his mouth. He kept coming and drew near. Then the sentinel saw another man running, and the sentinel called to the gatekeeper and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he is also bringing tidings. The sentinel said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. The king said, He is a good man and comes with good tidings. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. He prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I do not know what it was. The king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you on this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The word of the Lord. Do you remember the handsome, brave, winning young boy, the shepherd from the hinterlands, who faced down the giant Philistine warrior Goliath with nothing but a slingshot in his faith in the living God of Israel? Remember the lad David, 
Jesse's youngest son, the boy least likely to be anointed king, yet the one whom the prophet Samuel chose in preference to his older brothers, the close friend and perhaps also the lover of King Saul's son, Jonathan, the young lion of Judah, the most celebrated king that Israel ever had, anointed by God's own prophet, the one with so much promise with whom God made an everlasting covenant. What happened to that man, to his family, and to his kingdom? How did we end up here with David weeping and incapacitated, with two of his sons dead, actually, two of them, the eldest, Amnon, killed by his own brother Absalom, and now Absalom killed for treason by David's own agents after raising an army against his father. Not even to mention that other dead child, the first one, conceived by David and Bathsheba, when Bathsheba's husband Uriah was out on the battlefield fighting on David's behalf. <clears throat> the child God caused to die as a punishment for David's sins of lust and power. How did it come to this? Who would have thought a story that began with such promise would end this way? Scholars call this later set of stories about King David's house the succession narrative. One by one, all David's other sons are eliminated until only Solomon, David's most calculating and politically ruthless son, remains. Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann assumes that the author who wrote the earlier inspiring stories about David's rise to power is not the same author who wrote the darker, more troubling stories that begin with David's dealings with Bathsheba, which, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. But whether these are separate writers or not, it's pretty clear that all the favor David enjoyed in his early rise to power yields to a more troubling reality. As the prophet said, the sword will never be lifted from David's house. Perhaps we shouldn't be surprised <clears throat> when the people originally asked for a king so that Israel could be like other nations. God, through his prophet Samuel, warned them what would happen. The king will take your best land, will take your children to serve as soldiers in his wars, will make you as slaves. Why are you rejecting the freedom I gave you when I delivered you from captivity in Egypt? You saw what kings were like then. Look at the Pharaoh. Is that really what you want? And the people's answer was a resounding yes. So God said, you want a king? Okay, so here's Saul. See how you like him. Well, as it turned out, not very much. Saul was the first king of Israel. And while he was a fierce warrior and enjoyed some early popularity, he was impulsive and crude and ineloquent. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it reminds you of anything uh, in the political scene today. He was terrible at public relations, so he lost the confidence of God and the people. So then along comes David, handsome, young, charismatic musician and a poet, king right out of central casting. He represented something different, a popular charismatic kingship, grounded in justice and compassion, he stood for, for change you could believe in. 
Everybody seemed to love David, including, or perhaps especially, the narrator who recounts his rise to power. When David first appears, the narrator tells us he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. I think it's the beautiful eyes part that sets David so apart. Saul is described as handsome, but nobody said he had beautiful eyes. So David is sent to serve King Saul in order to eventually replace him, but nobody bothers to tell that to Saul. And like everybody else, Saul falls in love with David. The text says that Saul loved him greatly, and became he became Saul's armor bearer. And whenever the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, <clears throat> David took the lyre and played it with his hand, and Saul would be relieved and feel better. The evil spirit would depart from him. So David's seductive powers extend not only to King Saul, but also, in fact, especially to Saul's son and heir, Jonathan. The narrator tells us that the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing, he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. In so doing, Jonathan strips himself of all protection against the man who will usurp the throne from his father and end his family's short-lived dynasty. But David's seductive powers blind Saul and Jonathan to the role David is to play in their undoing. Whether as a result of God's plan, and despite David's own good intentions, as the Bible suggests and the author suggests, or due to David's own treachery and ambition, as we modern readers might suspect, Saul and Jonathan both end up dead and David ends up on the throne. And then there's the lore that follows David, like his triumph over Goliath. Though only a boy, David offers to fight the giant Philistine. Saul says, you can't do that, you're only a boy. But David replies, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And whenever a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after it and struck it down, rescuing the lamb from its mouth. And if it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, rescuing the lamb from its... If it turned against me, I would catch it by the jaw, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, since he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, The Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will save me from the hand of this Philistine. Talk about an inspirational speech. David was, he was too young to wear the heavy armor. So he approached Goliath with nothing but his staff, five stones placed in a shepherd's bag and a slingshot. Goliath disdained David, for he was only a youth. But as the narrator can't resist reminding us again, also ruddy and handsome in appearance. But David strikes down Goliath with his slingshot and cuts off his head. Now it's doubtful the story is factual, but we can assume uh, it's based on wide dissemination and the wide dissemination of the story that David was a master of public relations. And then there follows one triumph after another. David conquers his enemies, consolidates his power, establishes Jerusalem as his royal city. 
But the David text turns abruptly darker as it moves into the succession narrative, beginning with the Bathsheba story, which foreshadowed the text we read today. So Absalom's death, which we heard about in the scripture reading today, it arises out of a painful struggle between Absalom and his older brother Amnon. Amnon was David's eldest son. As David's heir apparent, Amnon could have had any young woman in the kingdom, but his lust bent toward his own half-sister Tamar. Tamar was Absalom's full sister, so there was a strong bond between them, and Absalom had a duty to protect Tamar. But Amnon summoned Tamar to his bedside, and he raped her. And after raping her, he felt contempt for her, as abusive people so often feel toward their victims. Absalom demanded justice for his sister, but there was none to be had from King David. After all, David was living in a glass house when it came to using his own power to satisfy his lust. And many of you maybe know this story already, but um, it's maybe worth uh, just revisiting it for a moment. Um, you see, David had committed the same crime as his son Amnon with a woman named Bathsheba. And as you may recall, Bathsheba was a married woman after whom David lusted. So he summoned her to his quarters, and though it's not usually put this way, he forced himself upon Bathsheba by use of his royal power. It's implied pretty heavily in the text. In other words, he, he raped her. Um, wanting to continue the affair, David devised a scheme to kill Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was a soldier in David's army. So he put Uriah in the front of the battle lines and Uriah was indeed killed. God condemned David, but after David repented, God forgave him. As a consequence of David's uh, sin, the child conceived by David and Bathsheba was caused to die, which hardly seems fair to the child or to its mother. So David's um, abusive sexual acts foreshadow Amnon's, and David doesn't impose any justice for his daughter. So after David does nothing for Tamar, Absalom has um, Amnon killed, and he then raises an army to defeat and usurp David's kingdom. But usurping the kingdom from a king as savvy and popular as David would be no easy task. What made Absalom think he could do it? Well, the fact is, uh, Absalom was really his father's son more than anybody else. Like his father, Absalom is so good-looking that he's beyond handsome. The narrator tells us, Now in all Israel there was none to be praised so much for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And he also inherited his father's ability to inspire and seduce people. As the story goes, Absalom would get up early and meet people who were coming to Jerusalem to bring a suit before the king, and he'd seem to take a real interest in their affairs, asking them where they're from, what brought them to Jerusalem. And then he'd say to them, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no one deputized by the king to hear you. If only I were judge in the land, I'd give you justice. And so we are told Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. 
Now with a huge following, Absalom raises an army and David's reign is imperiled. David is growing old and moreover, he loves Absalom as the son after his own heart. So David, the Lion of Judah, falls into a state of lethargy and despair. He's almost paralyzed. But God is still watching out for him, or perhaps David is simply being clever and watching out for himself. Absalom's plans fail because God confuses his advisors and causes Absalom to accept bad counsel. And David is also fortunate in the service of his crafty and ruthless general Joab, who doesn't have to be told what to do. He knows what needs to be done in order to keep David in power. So even though David counsels mercy toward Absalom, Joab has him killed, leaving to David's famous lament, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, would that I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. I think this lament is sincere. It's tragic. At that moment, David's world collapses, and he wishes he had died instead of Absalom. William Falter wrote a great novel based on this story. It's called Absalom, Absalom. Faulkner's novel is set in Mississippi shortly before and during the Civil War. The David-like anti-hero in the novel is a ruthless, larger-than-life plantation owner named Thomas Sutpen. The web of sin and destruction in Faulkner's novel is woven from the evil of slavery and in denying the humanity of black people. As with David, the sword is never lifted from Sutpen's house. Needless to add, Sutton's novel is a tragedy, just as the succession narrative is wrought with tragic themes. So you might wonder, where's the good news here? Surely the narrative arc must bend toward redemption. This is King David we're talking about, the prototype of the Messiah. I mean, we read this at Christmas time, right? In uh, Isaiah, um, House of David, often analogies between Jesus and David. Jesus is of David's house and lineage, it said. Um, it was with David that God made an everlasting covenant with Israel and through Israel the world. Yet David's house is riddled with violence, so maybe the promise is made through David but ultimately bypasses him in favor of Israel as a whole. Except that Israel doesn't last long either. Soon enough it will be carved into pieces by various empires First the northern kingdom falls to Assyria, then the southern kingdom to Babylon, and even after restoration, it's never really autonomous again. By the time Jesus is born, Israel, then known as Palestine, is a Roman colony. The prophet Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his right. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use, and you will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And still the people said, give us a king, but not one like Saul, not a crude coarse king who sounds stupid and puffs out his chest as if he enjoys war and hates poor people. 
Give us an eloquent king like David who plays the lyre and speaks like a poet. Give us a handsome, liberal-seeming king who will keep the empire intact but will make us feel good about him and ourselves. We don't want to live under a crude king like Saul, but we also don't want to take upon ourselves the responsibility of achieving justice and equality. So give us a leader to do it for us. Give us a king who will proclaim peace and justice even if he actually delivers the same imperial violence and inequality that the empire demands he or she deliver. And God replies, okay, if that's what you want, that's what you'll have, but not because it's what I want, but because you chose it. But if you ever decide to live freely and compassionately without depending on a king for your identity, if you ever decide you want to walk humbly, seeking justice for the outcasts and showing mercy to the poor, if you ever decide you want to become stewards of the earth, halting your heedless destruction and establishing a right relationship with the rest of creation, then look me up because I have some ideas. And that is the good news I have for tonight. I hope it's enough. 